Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws in American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. The NWF Outdoors podcast is brought to you by Hunt to Eat, an inclusive hunting apparel company with a focus on community, real food, and conservation. Check out Hunt to Eat's NWF line, wild game recipes, and hunting and fishing designs at hunttoeat.com. And enter the code WILDLIFE10 to get 10% off your order. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to the NWF Outdoors podcast. This is Aaron Kindle with my co-host, Drew Youngdike. Today, we have a great guest. His name is Kevin Monteith. He runs the Monteith Shop at the University of Wyoming that is a world-renowned now at this time uh, ungulate research shop. Uh, and uh, I, I, I'm really happy we have Kevin on. I, I've been following some of the work uh, that he's doing uh, and, and particularly talk about mule deer today. Um, most people don't know about the plight of the mule deer. Mule deer are declining. A lot of people in the West are used to seeing them in our cities and our yards and so on. But out there in the woods, they're struggling a bit. And uh, so we're, we're lucky to have Kevin. How are you doing this morning, Kevin? Doing well. I'm happy to be here. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, well, let's talk about who you are first. You're from South Dakota. Uh, you've you've jumped around doing some doing some research. Spent a little time in in the Sierra Nevada mountains in California. Now you're in Wyoming. Uh, you know, it looks like you spent a little time in in Idaho. Kind of jumped around the West. Uh, anything else our listeners should know about your your background? It, yeah, I probably often often say maybe the most important part of my background is. Uh, sort of my my humble small town beginnings. I grew up as just a honestly small town redneck kid. Grew up fishing, hunting, uh, pretty much exclusively in eastern South Dakota. But so what that means is we had phenomenal pheasant hunting, waterfall hunting growing up. Fished a lot, uh, and we did it together as a family. My grandpa, my dad, my mom, and my two younger brothers. Uh, and honestly, hated school. So it's pretty hilarious that I took the path that I ultimately did 
in the end, uh, love the outdoors, needed the outdoors for, for sustenance, uh, not only just for the experience, the connection, but also to, to feed our family and was just going to go to tech school, honestly, because that's all I really knew was manual labor uh, all growing up and then happened to find out there is so-called wildlife school in South Dakota because I was never going to leave South Dakota either. Uh, and then one thing led to another work hard, various experiences, began to learn about animals, learn about research, and then just kind of fell in love with it. Really wanted to be able to learn what makes animals tick, uh, what makes them do what they do, how they make decisions, how they persist in an environment. And yeah, doors just sort of continued to open opportunity. One opportunity led to the next from master's degree at South Dakota State, a PhD at, at Idaho State, and then ultimately ended up here in Wyoming and have had uh, yeah, a whole suite of phenomenal people to work with uh, over the years. We're very very blessed to be doing what I am doing today with the people that we get to do it with. And that's ultimately what's made everything that we do possible. I've, I think probably paid, played little role in, in all of that. Uh, there's a lot of people that have come together to make, make all this happen. So. You're a humble guy, but uh, a really impressive background on what you've done and what you're learning about and how you're enlightening a lot of us on, on ungulates and what they're doing out there. So, Appreciate you coming. Uh, we also always talk to folks about what they've been doing outside lately to kick off the show. Uh, we'll start with you today. Tell, tell us what you're up to or what you're hoping to be up to. Yeah. Uh, um, I know you've warned me of that question. And, and then my answer is I haven't been doing anything, <laughs> sadly, other than just busting my tail. Uh, the, the little sort of maybe the parallel side story with that is I'm also a taxidermist as well. And so I'm, I, I, it's, I think it'd be an excuse to say I live vicariously through the people that are bringing me stuff. Um, and I do big games. So, uh, people have been bringing in some pretty impressive, impressive mule deer. That's just made me feel really guilty for, for not getting out. But at the same time, uh, it's, it's these resources that, uh, also used to feed my family. We hunt as much as we can as a family. So, and we certainly have plans here in October to be able to get out, hopefully, uh, get after some deer pronghorn, hopefully elk as well. And then we do have a family trip planned to Eastern South Dakota, the end of the month here, go back to my roots a little bit and <laughs> hopefully go, uh, go shoot some waterfall. So looking, looking forward to that. Nice. That sounds, that doesn't sound too bad. You got a lot of things to look forward to. Absolutely. Yeah. Drew, yeah. what about you? I know you, you got a little time out lately. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, I took last week off and went up to, to my family roots. Um, my, my extended family's got a cabin up in the Western upper peninsula. So, uh, it's where we filmed our Northwoods unleaded film last year. Uh, so I went up there and, uh, did a little, did some fishing, uh, did some fly fishing for pike. Um, and, and then I also pulled out uh, some vintage tackle for Pike too with my spinning rod and was going through my, my great uncle Bill's old tackle box and pulled out the old daredevils, which by the way, were invented by a taxidermist. Oh, daredevils. The daredevil spoons. Yeah. 
So I've been just like geeking out on, on vintage fishing gear, um, especially after I broke my nine weight. So after I broke my nine weight, I'm like, cool. Now all I got left is this vintage fishing gear and we'll see what we can do with it. But yeah, it was relaxing. Got to see eagles, see loons, uh, reminded why I use non-lead hunting and fishing uh, gear just because I don't want to poison them. And, uh, you know, it was just kind of a, a great reset of of both why I like to be outside, do things outdoors and kind of where, where my conservation ethic came from too. Nice. Uh, and, uh, I guess for me, I, this listeners to this podcast know that I've been out with my son during muzzleloader season here. We did not harvest. We've been in and around the elk every day. Uh, but, uh, we've only been about a hundred yards from them before they move. And, we need to get a little closer to that. My 15-year-old son and a 270 grain, 50 caliber muzzle loader. So we we've not harvested. We had some excellent experience. The last day we were out, we were really fortunate. We sat between three bulls, bugling. Maybe 200 yards was the furthest away one. Three bulls just bugling like crazy. And I had a green weenie cow call with me, and I figured out how to make some semblance of a bull call, a bugle with that, and. It's hilarious. They they bugled back, and I don't think it sounds nearly good enough, but they bugled back at us, and we had some really good laughs. So that's where I've been. We get a little break here, and then I'll be back out uh, for rifle season here early October. Uh, a good, good segue into diving in with you, Kevin. And I think the first thing you should just tell our listeners is what exactly is the Monteith Shop? You know, what, what was it founded for? It, it, it carries your namesake. Obviously, you're the, uh, you're the tip of the spear up there. Uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, what it is, its purpose, its goals, those types of things. Yeah, so, I mean, ultimately, we're a team of researchers, team of scientists here at the University of Wyoming, which is comprised mostly of various grad students, research scientists, postdocs, stuff like that. Uh, and we... We work in close collaboration and in partnership with suite of state federal agencies uh, to do our best to ultimately address questions that matter for management and at the same time simply advance our understanding of the ecology of these critters that we care so much about. Uh, Our motto is advancing science and management one data point at a time. And I think hopefully that motto sort of captivates the notion that uh, we're out there. We're generally trying to put animal stories together, understand their connections to the environment they live in, not only how they respond to it, but as well as how they're affected by it. And many of those pieces uh, are data that are difficult, as in they're, they're hard-won data that m- many struggle to get. And I think it also hopefully exemplifies that uh, we're not just scientists sort of sitting behind our computers or in a lab playing with petri dishes and pipettes. Not that that's a bad thing. It has its place. But at the same time, uh, that's just not what defines us. And I think that's where the, at least for me, for good or bad, when when we decided to go with the name Monteith Shop, many will hear of research labs. And I couldn't yeah, I just couldn't embrace that notion because I think it draws one into wearing a white trench coat and goggles and playing with pipettes and that sort of thing. Whereas my hope is that I think of a shop more as like 
mechanic shop, an auto body shop, a welding shop, where we're in hands dirty, turning wrenches, that sort of thing. And maybe the analogy could be like a diagnostic mechanic. We're maybe diagnostic mechanics, but but we're operating to understand what what's wrong or what's driving or what's influencing ungulate populations within the world in which they reside. And so I really wanted to be able to maintain that that connection to uh, to yeah to hands dirty to to being out there to to gaining that hard won data uh, that that are so difficult to get our hands on but matter so much for increasing our understanding and it's in a true sense of collaboration as well. I mean, I may be the the lead, but uh, I'm or the spokesperson. I'm probably more the spokesperson than anything, in, in, in especially like in an environment like this, because it's a lot of a lot of really phenomenal people. Not only with my own team of grad students here, but all the other people that we work with that uh, that get the job done in the end. That's awesome. And that might be a great time to just put in a small plug. We, we've got an exciting project coming up with Artemis and a lot of the women that are having to be doing research with you. You've got a, a lot of awesome women doing research there. And we've seen a little bit of their stuff through some of the products that have been out in the world. Um, but we're, we're going to do a, a several part podcast series with, with the other women in your shop. And uh, that's going to be really cool. Just a little plug. Look out for that on, on Artemis uh, podcast here in the future. Uh, tell us a little bit, you know, give us a, just an overview on the state of mule deer. Like I said earlier, a lot of people think, you know, if you're in downtown Laramie, for instance, you probably see a herd of mule deer run across the highway, uh, right across town, eating in your backyard. We, I live here in Salada, Colorado. We have gigantic mule deer bucks and all kinds of does and fawns running around town causing trouble. But out there in the wild, they're they're having trouble. And and just give us kind of that big overview picture, the trends and the threats, you know, some of the things you're seeing through your research. Yeah, the I think the the notion of the various things that we see, especially within towns, is a pretty bad representative of of what we of what the reality is in with not to say those aren't real mule deer, but we often call them county deer and they don't really represent what we might call real mule deer uh, very well. And, and the reality is, is we certainly don't have the mule deer that we did historically. And by and large, they continue to struggle. I mean, broadly, sort of like the big picture references is, you know, we've maybe seen a 40% decline over the past number of decades. And that's probably... It would vary from place to place is, is the honest truth with that. It's probably maybe mostly stabilized, but in some places uh, still trended downward and maybe in, you know, a, a proportion, a small proportion of places we've seen, we've seen an uptick. But the point is, and, and I think largely why there is so much concern and so much talk over mule deer is we don't have near the number that we used to. Uh, many people reference in our fond of the 60s and 70s, for example, in particular, maybe even slightly before that. Uh, I didn't get to experience that window of time. I've seen pictures of it. I've had conversations about it. And I think it would have been a pretty amazing time to experience. And if you just, of course, draw from that window of time to where we've come today, I mean, our mule deer populations have changed, but there's been a whole suite of other changes that have also occurred. I mean, from from land use, I mean, from our presence on the landscape to timber management, to 
potentially grazing practices to predator control to climate, maybe drought, winter related patterns uh, to the presence of disease. Uh, I mean, as you begin to just like broaden your scope a little bit and then just sort of count up the various things that have happened since that time and with the pieces that we know or coming to appreciate relative to mule deer, most of the things that have changed have not been changes in a direction that would be beneficial to mule deer. So the, the point is, is that there's potentially multiple layers that are just stacked on top of each other over time that haven't been to the benefit of mule deer and have probably led to where we sit today. And where we sit today is with an abundance of mule deer that is not, that pales in comparison to what we've seen before and many populations that are still struggling, struggling mightily to, to hang on. And with, with those layers, is it like a death by a thousand cuts type of thing, or are there a couple of those that are kind of outsized in their impact that they've had on mule deer in the last few decades? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. The, and this is probably part of the frustration with some of these issues, right? And, and, and honestly, some of what's even driven research in the past too, and even still to today, we go in and we maybe work for a couple of years, right? Which is pretty typical. We get a research project that lasts two years, maybe three, and we're zeroed in on one thing, right? But the challenge is, is when all of these pieces are potentially operating, zeroing in on that one thing without doing our best to account for all these other pieces doesn't really give us the full scope of what's going on. And then also I think is sort of crippling in our ability to convey the realities of it. And the realities of it probably are death by a thousand cuts, so to speak. But if you can imagine at the same time, and this is also the other side of the frustration, is its nuance too. Right. So in some places, some of those cuts are going to be deeper. And in other places, those same cuts are subtle and there's different cuts that are cutting deeper. And so I think that the the place for good research is acknowledging that and doing our best within these various systems to understand what cuts are bigger than others. I mean, one thing for certain is that when, when, I mean, what forms the foundation for the populations that we have today, yesterday, decades ago, is ultimately the resources and the habitats that, that is there. So, and granted, my background is nutritional ecology, but I think it's that, and my focus is that for a reason, because in the absence of an appropriate foundation, and that is the habitat and the food resources, all those other things don't matter. Like it, it doesn't matter what factors are coming into play if you don't have a foundation that's shored up to support the animals that you have there. Or you may want, you may want double the animals you have, and you may go in and waylay every predator on the landscape. If you don't have the foundation to support double the animals, it doesn't matter what you do. You can beat your head against the wall. And so, I will always say that, and maybe in some places habitat is less limiting and there's other things that are coming into play. But in all honesty, I think that's a pretty rare thing. Generally, 
our foundation either needs to be shored up, needs to be better, or uh, there's there's competition for those resources, like wh whatever the case may be, oftentimes that the foundation of those resources is either not what it used to be or isn't where we want it to be if we actually want more animals on the landscape. And so that one, it certainly could be viewed as a cut, but I like to sort of flip it around and view it as like, this is the building block. This is what it takes. If we don't have the box boxes there to uh, the blocks there to build, doesn't matter. We're not we're not going to get there. And I think, and that's a struggle. And I think it's a challenge in our minds to visualize those things because when we look at the landscapes that some of these animals occupy, man, th these vast mountain ranges or whatever the case may be, man, there's green stuff. There's there's food all over the place. But the, the challenge is it's not that simple. Not all of that food is what it takes to, to finance and fuel a mule deer. Uh, maybe the population isn't accessing all of it. Maybe there's other things that are using it as well. And so it's it's a difficult thing for us to be able to grasp, but it's it's an operating reality and it's ever present. That's a good way to help us think about this, I think. You know, a lot of people think it's kind of simple, like oh, they're getting hit on the roads or there's energy development or, you know, some sort of thing that's just that's the cause. And, and as we know about ecology, ecology is the holistic system together and what it all means. And I think it's good to help implore people to think that way. Uh, there's a lot of things going on. That's probably a good segue too. let's talk about a little of your research. I mean, one of the things I looked at as we were kind of thinking about what to talk to you about and, and what might be interesting is this, um, the DEER project. DEER is an acronym, the DEER Elk Ecology Research Project. And it, it's kind of, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's talking about the relationship between deer and elk and their habitat and kind of, you know, it's been an interesting phenomenon. I know here in Colorado, and I think the same is true for a lot of the West, elk are increasing, deer are decreasing. You're sitting here going, what in the heck, you know, deer are, deer are browsers, right? They eat a lot more different things. You'd think, you know, if fringe habitat created by development, all these other things that they might have more opportunity out there in the ecosystem, but it's kind of been opposite of that. Um, so maybe just dive in a little bit on what deer project is and what you're trying to find out there and, you know, interesting things you're, you're seeing. You bet. Yeah. So yeah, deer project, deer elk ecology research project that, that, the home for that work was in South Central Wyoming. So in the greater Little Mountain ecosystem and what that is, is it's a fairly pristine high desert ecosystem, which, you know, a lot of our deer work has uh, been in what we might view as the more quintessential mountain mule deer. But man, we have high desert mule deer like that all over, all over the West. And, and we just haven't really dug deeply into sort of that, that type of mule deer, so to speak. But what drove that work and initiated was interest uh, largely from a nonprofit group, so Mealy Fanatic Foundation, to wanna help be part of the solution and garner answers. This area is a, is a, is a highly, value, highly valued area in Wyoming, sort of a gem of Wyoming because it is so pristine yet. Use, mule deer used to be highly abundant, used to be a general season, uh, produced world-class world-class male deer down in that country and that 
population of deer has been on a nosedive for decades and it continues in that direction. And the one major change that's occurred within that landscape in the past few decades is the presence of elk. It's a large, robust elk population that's there now that three, four decades ago was not there. And so, and, and if you look more broadly across the West, of course, and, and, and probably many of you have heard individuals say this, like, oh man, this, this drainage, whatever, this ridgeline used to just be my go-to for deer, elk moved in and I hardly see any deer anymore. So there's this lurking question of what's going on with elk. And yeah, Aaron, you, you sort of, you, you captured it very well. Elk populations climbing, deer populations dropping. Is that just coincident? Do, does it, do the conditions currently benefit elk, but to the demise of deer? Or at the same time, might elk be contributing to that decline in mule deer populations? And now certainly we have deer populations where we don't have elk that are struggling as well, right? But could elk be another one of those cuts, so to speak? that's causing more rapid decline in our, in our deer population. And theoretically, they're different beasts. Deer, deer are browsers, we know that certainly. Elk are supposed to be grass eaters. But what we've also come to appreciate is that uh, elk are, they are an incredibly versatile beast from so many different layers of their ecology, from how they move and occupy the landscape to what they eat. And honestly, they can live off deer food just as well as deer can live off deer food. And that's one, one thing that we've definitely learned within that system. Deer within that high desert, or elk, sorry, elk within that high desert system uh, are eating a lot of deer food uh, as opposed to consuming grass. So they're eating a lot of woody browse. And in fact, even with some of our field work out there, I mean, I'll never forget one day as we were working to uh, radio collar an elk calf, which was so part of our work was to capture and monitor survival of both newborn deer and newborn elk alongside each other. And I was sitting on a ridge line watching a cow that had just given birth. And the hope was that she would clue us into where her calf was. And she's walking. She was just moseying around feeding, walking through green, green grass, going to mountain mahogany plants and leaf stripping. So she's walking through this lush green grass, going straight to mountain mahogany plant leaf stripping and she did that for like an hour and pretty much ignored the grass that she was standing on top of and I think that's seemingly anecdotal but we have all the diet data to back that up as as well uh, and so that right there adds a layer to that picture of potential competition in a land that we know is resource limited also within that system we saw severe drought that led to the lowest fawn survival that we ever saw over all those years uh, female deer hardly gained any fat over that summer. They entered into that following winter. We ended up having a fairly bad winter for that area. Of course, they weren't prepared for it. So kind of knocked the feet out from underneath them. We had really poor adult survival over that winter as well. And then following that spring for those animals that survived that bad winter, they were the fattest we had, we had seen them, uh, during that season. Uh, so clearly, uh, within that system during our work. So clearly demonstrating this bottom-up food-based influence on that deer population within that system that was driven in part by moisture. Elk certainly being a potential presence that, that there is competition there potentially. 
since they are consuming food resources that we know to be limited. At the same time, they also face predation from coyotes and mountain lions. Uh, we saw fairly high rates of coyote predation on fawns, especially during the first year of our work. We saw fairly high rates of predation by mountain lions on adults. And so it, I think what we're beginning to see, oh, and the, the other thing with that as well, one thing intuitively could be, well, deer are just going to find places within that landscape where they can like balance all these risks. So risk of predation from coyotes, risk of predation from mountain lions, risk of potential of a potential competitor. So, so elk, but what we see is that they can't really do that. And what we end up seeing is they're living in places where that risk occurs. And we just see them making decisions and how they use the landscape where their home range is to balance that risk. So that is as the risk they face within their home range increases, they use those places on their home range a bit, a bit less. So they're doing the best they can, but I think it's a, it's a great example, as you mentioned before, Drew, of a place where in this high desert system currently, without a doubt, that base layer, the foundation of the resources uh, is not as strong as it probably should be. A potential competitor is not helping it. But then at the same time, we still, we have all these, uh, these other cuts that are coming into play as well. And so we're still working on that. We've, we finished the field work for that project. We're still doing all the work on the back end, which unfortunately I always feel like I have to apologize as a scientist. It's like, we're still waiting through it. You'd think it'd just be like, come on, you have it now. Just give us the answers. But those aspects take time and a lot of effort, but we're still waiting through those pieces. We've amassed a pretty incredible data set and we'll have a lot more to talk about in the, in the years to come relative to those dimensions. And then hopefully being able to get a sense of what levers we can push or pull on potentially depending upon the desires for that system and for that deer population. You know, it's really interesting to hear you talk about the interplay between the deer and the elk as far as competition, um, particularly if you're from the Midwest. Um, I live in Michigan and I'm on the advisory council for the Pigeon River Country State Forest, which is where our Michigan elk herd is. It's also where we do our deer camp uh, for white-tailed deer. And completely different ecosystem. We're talking about, you know, a mixed deciduous, uh, you know, evergreen forest system, uh, some upland mixed in, um, some young aspen that's actually really good grouse habitat too. And we'll see the, the elk, when they're using a, a section of that forest, particularly like they like to come through where we put our deer camp sometimes, you'll see the deer kind of move out. Not necessarily that they're fighting, they just kind of gradually drift away and give that space to the elk. But then they really hammer that young aspen when we do the clear cuts and have that growing up. You'll see the elk come in and really browse that heavy, heavy, um, too, with that woody browse. So it's interesting hearing that same dynamic play out in a high desert habitat, you know, uh, same type of relationship, very different part of the country and habitat, too. Yeah, exactly. And in that habitat, South Rock Springs, there's there's places where there's stringers of aspen stands. And with the presence and abundance of elks that are there now, I mean, it's just, there's virtually no regeneration. The, the, the aspen suckers just, just don't stand a chance. And of course, for mule deer, if aspen are going to be a good thing, you know, we want, we want those aspen suckers coming, coming back in. We want new growth, new generation. And 
it's not happening with that uh, abundant elk herd. So yeah, there's definitely some interactions and interplay there. And, and it, it also begs the question, you know, the, these are pieces relative to deer elk potential competition. It's not an easy thing to answer. You don't just say, I'm going to go measure competition. It, it, it's not, it's not that simple, but also like, even if you take what we've seen in this high desert system and consider more of like the high mountain country where we definitely have deer and elk populations that reside together. I think there, there's other layers and other potential questions there with those very different habitats as to what role elk may be playing in, in that system as well. In the, you know, the other piece with, well, with white-tailed deer as well, but also mule deer, that's also led to some of our other work, or at least, at least as a foundation for some of our other work, is that these animals are incredibly faithful. Elk less or so, they're very adaptable, very flexible. Mule deer, white-tailed deer are very faithful. So that is, they go to their summer range, they follow the same migratory route, the same winter range, year in, year out, once it's established. So with that backbone of that knowledge of knowing how faithful these animals are, then what does that mean relative to the presence of elk and why maybe in some places where we have abundant elk now, we see almost no deer. Is it because they've actually displaced them, those animals dispersed and found new places to make a living? or with the presence of elk there, the heightened level of competition, nutritional feedbacks within that area to those deer, were those animals just less successful over time? And we've sort of weeded them out or has something else happened? I mean, there's how these processes play out are actually really important for understanding, for example, the dynamics of our deer populations. And it plays into, so not just this elk question, but all the other pieces with how our landscape has changed over time as well. And when you consider a really faithful animal, you know, and, and how things have changed as our deer populations have declined, there's places that we know of and probably everybody knows of a place that used to be covered up in mule deer. And now you go there and you don't see a single one. Why is that? Well, part of it is probably related to this notion of how faithful these animals are. And there may be vacant, good habitat that is there, but because these animals are so faithful, it's not really part of their world. And so they don't go use it. And so the question then is, how do all these processes happen or are born, born out across generations of how animals make decisions of what they're going to call home and then be faithful to? And then in knowing that, how, so for example, could we reoccupy some of those spaces again that are now maybe vacant space that these deer are not occupying currently? Because when we consider the foundation of habitat, the resources or the building blocks that ultimately make a population, it doesn't matter that it's just on the mountain. The animals have to, it has to be part of their world. The animals have to be using it. So currently the vacant pockets are not part of what that population is using. And the only way we potentially gain that capacity to support more is if it, it, animals could quickly and easily integrate that into the population by accessing it. But in, in these seem like nuanced questions, 
but they actually matter immensely to our populations and how we could potentially grow back to some of the abundance that we saw historically, especially if these vacant spots are a reality. And I think based on the evidence we have, and I mean, historical evidence of, of just cultural knowledge of, of various folks that have lived in these areas, it's, it's true. It's a, it's a reality. And so how do we, how do we get back those pieces? And the only way of knowing that is how these like cross generate potentially cross generational pieces are coming into play and operating within our deer populations. And Kevin, I, as we sit here and talk, I feel like we could do a six hour podcast. There's so many layers to this and you know, you're, you're kind of unpacking ecology a little bit, which is a daunting piece of work to do on any subject because there's, you know, the, we don't know what we don't know. And it's hard to, you have to go do a lot of research to figure out what you don't know. And then once you don't know, you got to go figure out how you can figure out what that is. <laughs> so That's right. th this is, this is fantastic. And you touched on a little bit kind of, you know, the faithful way of mule deer. And I think that's a good segue to talk about this rose petal premise. And this thing is abundantly fascinating to me. And I think our listeners will really appreciate it too. And we'll, we'll try to get on some more things here in the time we have, but, but unpack that one a little for us. Tell us about that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it does lead nicely to that idea. And this, and this idea matters so much and and yet it's just something that we haven't had an appreciation for for a long time and it actually the pieces and the aspects that you just mentioned to me remind me of one of Aldo Leopold's quotes of of basically assuming that the you know your your food comes from the grocery store or that the heat comes from the furnace sort of thing right and not actually knowing where those pieces like how that actually all comes into play it's kind of like as a hunter or a wildlife watcher, just you see a mule deer, it's like, hey, cool, that mule deer is there. But then like your mind isn't drawn back to, well, wait, how did that mule deer get there? Where did it come from? Because in a lot of these systems, how it got there, it, it probably doesn't live there all year round. But the only reason that it is there on that day is because the whole rest of its world is all there and it has access to it as well. And that could be a hundred plus mile migratory route and a winter range that's in a completely different area, but it's all those pieces all together that make it possible what we have. And that translates into this idea of the rose petal hypothesis. And this has been, and maybe it's my, my like Midwest background. I was fortunate enough to, be able to work on whitetail deer for a lot of years and this idea and so that idea comes from the whitetail deer world it was actually in a uh, phd student's dissertation uh, and unfortunately wasn't ever like formally published uh, but the idea has been drawn from that in a few different pieces at least in the whitetail deer literature and the notion is that deer are so faithful to place but the thought is, is that they're not only faithful, they also have natal philopatry or fidelity, meaning female offspring return back to home. And if we just focus on summer range, as in they go back to the area in which they were born. And, and so you might imagine if that process takes place, you have a matriarchal female and then her daughter then sets up shop next to her. Her daughter sets up shop next to her. Her granddaughter does. And as you can imagine then, what this could look like in space is a rose. 
which e with each petal of the rose being another related female. And so what that could mean is what we have are these natural lines or these matriarchal pockets of female deer on the landscape. And so in the white-tailed deer world, the notion has been, well, if we have crop depredation issues or we have a problem area for white-tailed deer, the way to really fix that is to go in and heavily harvest deer right around that area. You don't just shoot them right there. You bridge out and remove all of the females that are part of that rose. And then once you do that, you create vacant space. So your problem with crop depredation goes away because these animals are so faithful. But now take that idea and flip it, right? We don't necessarily want to create vacant space in the mule deer world. But if you translate, if that same idea holds in the mule deer world, what it could mean is we have young female deer that are learning and adopting a migratory route from mom, are establishing their summer ranges adjacent to mom. And so what we could have are these roses, and you can imagine hundreds or thousands of roses existing on summer ranges within this landscape those roses migrate together down a winter range, go back and forth, and they flux and expand depending upon birth rate, successful females, etc. That's the theory. That's the hypothesis. The only way we get to the bottom of that idea is to follow mother-daughter pairs together through time, and it starts at day one. So probably the reason we've been unable to uncover these pieces before, or even, for example, the rose, I mean, the rose petal hypothesis also applies to this idea that we call the ontogeny of migration. And that is, how did an animal ever learn to migrate? Did it just decide one day that it's going to go to this place? Did it learn alongside mom? Or did something, something else happen? And so all those ideas all come, all come together. But the only way we get there is to follow mom and her newborn offspring together until that newborn offspring grows to the point where it's putting its own fawns on the landscape. Because that's going to be the point in time when it, when it is, has to have established its summer range. And generally, with most work we've done, we're collaring animals at that stage. So we've missed the piece of what we've called the lost years, basically from six months of age, because there's been a lot of fawn survival work, but six months of age to two to three years of age. It's the lost years. We've never been able to really dig into that component. And it's really those years that, that we're gonna be able to uncover that. And that's what we've been working on doing specifically with the Wyoming Range Mule Deer Project. And it's that piece that's gonna tell us what establishes the occupancy of ranges on the landscape and maybe give us some insight in how we can maybe reoccupy vacant spaces. And as we're beginning to learn, daughters can certainly learn from mom. Many of them do have that natal fidelity. They return to their home range, but a few of them leave. And so what makes for that bold animal that leaves you know was it born in certain conditions was mom in certain condition is it associated with the habitat that they lived in because it's quite possible that those bold dispersers are the ones that may get us to reoccupy some of those vacant spaces because maybe all the other ones are just going to form another petal 
on the roads. But what it also means is if our work, and at least at the moment, there's a component of our animals that do, we have a long ways to get there because as you can imagine, you gotta follow an animal from day one and you need it to survive all the way to at least three. It takes a long time. Again, it's hard one data. But what that means is, what it potentially means is we're not just conserving habitat, we're not just conserving places, we're actually also conserving memory. And that is memory of access to a place because once a rose is gone or the memory of access to that place, to that migratory route is gone, it may not just come back overnight. How, how do we get it back? And it could be years, maybe even decades before we get it back. And those are some of the pieces that we're learning to, we're trying to unravel. And the one little like parallel on the side of that, we've been talking about females. So the other piece with that is, you know, maybe our bread and butter, high country bucks, these bachelor groups of bucks that we see that we're so fond of during, you know, seeing during the summer and into August and come hunting season. Well, where in the world did they come from? Right? It's a group of males. They were obviously born to a mom somewhere, but did they just, were they born to mom that's just on the other side of the hill, just below the hill? Did they come from 10 miles away? Like, it's also not only how are we stocking our deer ranges with female deer that are the reproductive segment of our population, but shoot, how are we, how are we stocking them with bucks? Where are those males coming from? And that's also, again, it's a question we've never really been able to get to the bottom of because you have to start from day one. There's no way you're going to do it in a two to three year research project. And there's no way you're going to do it with a just a routine research project where you're putting some collars on animals and following them. It's, uh, it's connecting all of those pieces uh, together. To, to me, it matters immensely. And I think what we're beginning to see is Mule deer are so incredibly faithful. There's these serious cross-generational influences that are happening. And if you ignore all of those things and, and we potentially make mistakes or there's nuance there that we don't, we're not quite wrapping our minds around and then we miss what we should actually be doing or even understanding what's making that system work. Again, it's like, assuming that the food comes out of the freezer or even the grocery store or whatever the case may be without having that backbone of what's making all that possible. I think we probably missed a lot of things over the years and it it's made for maybe a fairly inflexible animal that's been fairly sensitive to changes in the world uh, as it's experienced it over time, but it's in understanding those processes that may give us better insight into perhaps not only protecting what we have today or conserving what we have today, but seeing if we can get numbers back up for tomorrow. Well, some of this research definitely seems as, as you're explaining it, like it's, it's going to take some time to be able to draw some conclusions for it. But of what mule deer need, for instance, like right now of, of practices that research already has shown we can maybe implement now through policy or through practice. What are some of those things that we can potentially, or that hunters should know 
or policymakers should know that we can start doing now maybe to hold that line until we're able to learn that more nuanced detail of research? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think, I mean, relative to, relative to potentially gaining traction with where we are now, I think, I think a mindful focus or at least awareness on resources, on habitat condition, on successional changes associated with habitat and what deer really are. They need some of that early succession, higher quality foods, that sorts of things. At least being mindful of that is really important. But also then I even think just taking a step back and thinking more broadly at those resources, it still comes down to a resource issue. But the reason we have as large of populations and as robust of populations as we do in some places. So for example, like Western Wyoming, like the Wyoming range mule deer herd that, you know, is maybe somewhere around 30,000 strong has been more historically. One of the primary reasons that that is there and exist isn't because of the winter range where we see those 30,000 animals. It's because they have access to the vast expanse of, this, of the Salt Range and the Wyoming Range and the Upper Hoback that they're accessing during the summer, returning during the winter. And so, because the processes that are happening there, all those animals are concentrated on winter range, but as we know from our work, they also brought their summer range with them because they put fat on over the summer from their summer range. And so they essentially put those groceries on their back. They also financed reproduction, rearing of their fawns on summer range as well. And then, of course, they're bringing their summer range back in those fawns too. So if we end up, whether intentionally, unintentionally, whether it be, and we focus a lot on, on migratory routes, on, on conservation of migratory routes, which is certainly important. Uh, and and, and it's, a, it's not only a pathway where they're following lush food and gaining energy as they're migrating and following spring up across that landscape, but it's also getting them access to their summer range, which is basically, it's kind of like they're going to another grocery store. Rather than rely on the grocery store that's on winter range that has a limited capacity, hey, for this season, I'm going to head up here and I'm going to access that one. So for the population, because all these individuals are doing this, they've functionally increased the groceries that they have access to simply by that movement. And it's by that process that we're able to maintain these large, robust populations. And now certainly for mule deer that are as faithful as they are, once that migratory route is established, they're incredibly faithful. What we have today is almost with with little uncertainty remnants of what we had historically as we just consider how our landscape has changed over time but what it also means should mean to us today is to think about those resources that that population has access to and and do our best to be mindful of the decisions we make and how we use that landscape from now going forward so ideally if we want to keep that robust deer population 
we can maintain its access to those places. It can access the resources on its summer range. It can navigate through its migratory route to access its winter range and then connect all those processes together. Because for those animals in that population, their home isn't just where we see them on the day that we see them. Their home is that whole process. And if we slice pieces of that off, the simple fact is we just can't support as many animals as we would otherwise, because we're ultimately removing groceries. We're ultimately removing that, that building block that's making that possible. It's making it possible for us to support as many animals as we are. So I think, and, and I mean, we're going to live in this world, right? We're going to have some sort of presence one way or another. I think it's just doing our best to be informed, be mindful of the situations and be mindful, you know, look at, look at a deer, look at an elk, whatever, whatever the case may be, not to anthropomorphize, but acknowledge that what you see there on that day is a small picture of what's making all of that possible. And shoot as hunters uh and i mean i've been guilty for this in the past too it's like sweet you know i just was able to have this experience harvest this incredible animal this incredible duck i mean what whatever the case may be and you you're just like sweet this is awesome i'm gonna feed my family pack it out that sort of thing i think just a slight pivot or shift in how we think about that animal and even just pondering okay i know this animal isn't here all around all year round I bet given where I'm at, this animal migrates to here. It probably winters down in this area. Gosh, it's seven years old, which means it survived the two bad winters that we, you know, that we had have had over the past seven years. And so, and, and, and that's also, these are also elements relative to our work that we're trying real hard to communicate in different ways. We as scientists do a great job. Uh, and it's a lot of work communicating amongst scientists, right? We generally do a pretty crappy job of, of taking our information and communicating it to the general public. But I think so many people have a longing for that information right now, which is truly awesome. And I think we're doing a bit of a disservice if we're not simultaneously doing our best to have that conversation and engage in those conversations as well. And so that's something on the side of all the science we're doing. We're trying really hard to place a lot of emphasis in that arena as well to hopefully convey some of these nuances and maybe have a different kind of appreciation for what's making these animals tick, what they experience in, in, these, in this world. Because if nothing else, even if we don't have all the answers, by just simply reflecting about some of these things in a slightly different way, I think just shifts the way and shifts our perspective than the way in which we process things or come to appreciate things and appreciate what we have today. Well, well, part of that is our job at NWF. We've, we've got to take uh, your scientific, scientific information and present it to the, the hunters and anglers and the public that, that cares about it. So that's not all on you. That's, that's part of our job <laughs> here too. So that's why we got you on here. <laughs> well, and it's interesting. Hunters are pretty, you know, you can think about myopic people, right? <laughs> they get some pretty tunnel vision when they, when they know what they're after and they start liking a place and, you know, they, it, that they're one of the crews that probably needs a little bit more of that holistic thinking. I think that's a great uh, thing to help folks think about because 
you know, there's, if you think about projects, right, when we're doing, whether it be like pinion juniper removal or be, you know, wildlife crossings or whatever, they're kind of in a single place. Some in, a, in our minds, I think we're linear thinkers. We go, okay, right there, that thing happened. And so we've done something, but it, it's just a good reminder that the whole system is so important. And I, I think that's a good segue to one other thing we wanted to ask you about. It's, it's a hugely sexy topic the the migration you know whether it be the path of the pronghorn or red desert to hoback mule deer migration um you know most people know uh that secretary bernhard you know issued secretary order 3362 about you know two years ago now with a new focus on migration areas across the west you know talk about the intersection between your work and that um you know I've seen some amazing things. Highway 191 up there has some great crossings that have been very successful with mule deer, pronghorn, lots of other things. You know, just just give us the the you know your take on the intersection between all those things. You know, and and I know that's a huge one. And I've been sitting here thinking over and over again, man. I got to just go have beers with Kevin because I could, I could just talk about this forever, or maybe. Maybe drive around on a truck for a day with you while you're out there doing something. Cause I just, yeah. I have more questions than answers. That's for sure. Yeah. But, but talk about that for us, if you would, please. Yeah. I, don't worry. I have more questions and answers too. We're just, we're trying to get answers. <laughs> at least yeah. working as hard as we can to get answers. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean that movement and of course, probably largely has been spurred through research, a lot of work by a colleague of mine here, Matt Kaufman, associated with the Wyoming Migration Initiative. And then also as a group have been, uh, you know, there's been a lot of effort to map migration. So put lines on a map, which uh, going back to the conversation that we just had relative to the importance of migration and maintaining like current status, or at least the populations that we have now, maintaining access to those resources, it's absolutely critical. And we need to know where those things are to be able to make some of those decisions. Our interest as a, as a group has been a bit less on putting lines on a map and trying to better understand the mechanisms that underpin those pieces. And so for example, relative to that secretarial order, and this isn't to speak ill of it, because it, it's a it's a very profound and uh, impactful thing to have something like that in place to focus on a phenomenon like that to seek conservation for these four ungulate populations. But at the same time, there's been, and I don't know if it's myopic or lot, but or not, but it's like focus on migration, like the migration itself, the migratory route. And we do need to maintain that connectivity. And we know, and certainly even from our work as well, animals are following that wave of, of, of green lush forage as it moves across the landscape to their benefit from an energetic perspective during that time of year. But the other side of that is, and depending upon the length of the migratory route influences all those sorts of things as well, they're then on summer range for months and then they're back on winter range for months. And so what I think we don't want to, we don't want to mistake is to focus so much on the migratory route that we forget about the tails of it. Right? So the migratory route is not only a habitat where they access food, but it's also 
a conduit to get them between these two seasonal range ranges where there's a lot of important things that are happening during winter. They're hanging on doing their best to survive through the winter during the summer. And as we know from mule deer, as a general rule, they're getting to their summer range. They're then giving birth. They're then rearing offspring. And so again, it's, and, and you called it a holistic approach, which is exactly what it is as well. It's all these pieces together. It's not just the migratory route. And I think that's maybe been one of my sort of subtle fears on the side is we focus so much on the migratory route. We talk about green wave surfing, all these really critical things that are happening right at that window of time, which are all important. But, but my fear has been that we forget about the tales of those things as well, which are, one could argue are equally, if not more important, but there again, if you sever the migratory route, you also don't have the summer range, right? So it's truly all the, all the pieces that come, that come together that have to be operating. Yeah. You can't, uh, if there's nothing to migrate to those migration routes, sir, wouldn't mean very much and, and vice yeah. versa. If there's no, no way to get to them, then they, they don't mean very much. That's right. Um, that, that's a, that's interesting. Um, you know, I, I'd be remiss too, if I, if I didn't talk about some of the work Wyoming Wildlife Federation's done, they're obviously an affiliate of National Wildlife Federation. I, I know they worked really hard to help uh, Josh Corsi and company there at Muley Fanatics. We had Josh on actually a handful of episodes ago, but to get the, there was a license plate uh, that they passed through the legislature that created a fund to help help fund some of these crossings and migration routes and stuff. Are you, you're familiar with those, I'm sure, Kevin? For sure. I have, yeah, I have both our truck and our suburban have those plates on them. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It takes a lot of policy work. It takes a lot of time down at the legislature, you know, both in the state. And then, you know, we obviously work on a lot of national policies and utilize folks like the Wyoming Wildlife Federation who have that distinct, you know, on the ground knowledge right there in those places. Um, and, and all the other work. I mean, Muley Fanatics has been awesome. There's, you mentioned the Little Mountain area. We have a, we work with a coalition there, Wyoming Wildlife Federation does, and, and Muley Fanatics and Trout Unlimited and several others. That's a, that's a landscape we've all targeted as, you know, a place worth protecting and saving. It's unique. It's, I've spent a good amount of time there. It's, it's got so many cool folds and, and places that have something to surprise you around yeah. every corner. Um, what else should we, what else should we know? What, what, what can hunters be doing for instance, right now that, that might help, you know, move some of this along or is it just showing up and advocating at the legislature? Is it writing somebody? Is it telling other people, you know, give us, give us your kind of inside game of if you were average Joe or Jane Hunter, what would you do to help, help the plight of the mule deer? Yeah. <laughs> That's a great question and probably from, well, it's going to come from my angle because I'm answering it, right? Which means there's probably going to be a little bit of a, a, scientific, so. a scientific spin on it too. And the thing is, 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 so as I say these things too, I mean, I'm an avid hunter. I grew up in small town, South Dakota. Like this is, this, and I'm a taxidermist too. So, I mean, this is my world as well. And I would never fault a hunter or um, interested person in this manner. But uh, at the same time, I think because hunters are so close to these animals and to their world, they have a pretty unique insight 
into what makes these animals tick. But at the same time, that insight is constrained based on the tools that they have, right? So for example, me as a scientist, I have all, I have a whole suite of more tools from putting GPS collars on animals to handling animals multiple times a year, using an ultrasound to measure how fat they are, how, whether their reproductive status, we know if they're young survive, if they die, we know what, what killed them. It's, it's not just me walking through the timber, finding a dead elk that I know was, was killed by a lion and then inferring that lions are leading to the demise of our elk populations or, or whatever. I guess the, the point is, well, um, the point is, I, I think that, I, I think sometimes, and this, sorry if this sounds like bad or overly critical, but I, I, I think sometimes hunters have a tendency to latch on to certain things and to sometimes become a bit dogmatic in nature and preach the don't same say. song. What's that? <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> I do say. I've heard, I've heard so many hunters sit in a room and say, I've seen this thing once or twice, and God dang, that's exactly what's happening. That's, that's yes. the cause of everything. Yes, which which also means we tend to be a bit dogmatic. And it comes, so like I don't want to undermine that because to me it comes from a place of care and of passion and desire to know. But I, I think the point is, is when, when we as hunters come to various arenas that we should be a part in, as in like we should be speaking on behalf of, whether it's supporting contacting legislatures or showing up at commission meetings and voicing various things. When we convey things in that way, we sort of undermine our credibility pretty quickly because it's a preaching, preaching of this sort of dogmatic mindset and lacks the sort of communicating in a more informed manner that views things in a bigger, in a bigger picture. So I guess I would, say that the involved component matters so much. I mean, we, we, we follow the North American model for a reason. And I think we, as most hunters fail to acknowledge like the place that we play within that, like we're not just hunters, we're not just out there hunting, uh, but we're, we're purchasing licenses that are helping finance wildlife management and conservation but we also have a voice and we need to have a voice and that voice can carry a lot of weight. But unfortunately, when it is dogmatic or myopically focused on one thing, I think it doesn't necessarily carry a whole lot of weight. And I think it could carry a lot more weight and we could gain a lot more traction for sound decision-making if we all work to arm ourselves with, with more and better information. And that information and this isn't to be overly critical either, but it's information that's communicated like your organization. Uh, it's not off of some random celebrity's blog or, or some rant that somebody went and conveyed. We can all find what we want to believe in somewhere, right? But seek the information that's coming from a credible source. Try to become better informed, understand some of the nuance and then at the same time, as we go forward, uh, thinking about things from that broader holistic perspective as well, right? It's not just what we want. Uh, it's, it's the whole picture and taking it all together that matters. And we can have a strong and compelling voice, but 
be thoughtful about it, be informed about it, uh, and make sure you know who you're listening to and have an open mind. I mean, we learn things. And even as a scientist, it's like, we learn some things like crap. I didn't expect that to be like that, but that's the way it is. Be willing to change your mind based on sound information. Like I've always said, I'm happy to change my mind and be convinced by data. Uh, and I think we, we all, it would all serve us well to be able to, to do that. Uh, some of us struggle to do that. So. So what you're saying is don't take one piece of observational data and convey it through an angry guy in a truck YouTube rant. And then like, (laughs) (laughs) I have a great story on that. I I was once doing, uh, I was working, doing some conservation work. There was a travel management plan for folks who don't know what those are. That's when the forest service or the BLM decides here's which routes we're going to leave open or closed or whatever. And I was up there, I, I got up and talked and I said, you know, there's way too much route density through this key elk habitat. And uh, I talked about some of the science, you know, that we know if you get certain distance from a road, refuge, all the things. And I get done and the guy comes up to me and says, you don't know what you're talking about. And I said, oh yeah, well, well what do you mean? And he said, well, I was driving my four-wheeler last summer and I drove up this road and I got about 50 yards from some elk and they didn't even run. There's no problems in here. You don't have anything to worry about. You need to stop talking like this. <laughs> so uh, I, I would take home there, though, that the, the, the passion was what I cared about. And, and we actually ended up talking. And he walked out of that room with a, a few different things. I, I showed him to go take a look at these things and, and see because that's, that's one story. And it does happen sometimes. You can get – I've been shocked by how close – particularly during, you know, when it's not hunting season, how close you can get to animals sometimes. But uh, I like the passion, but there's a lot, of, I think there's some, something about the hunting community specifically. There's a, there's a, a tendency to say, I've seen this once or, or twice, and that must just be what it is. Um, I don't know what it is about the hunting community, but I found that more than most. Uh, well, let's, let's try to wrap up here a little bit, Kevin. I mean, I, I, I could go on all day. I've got, I wrote down about six or eight other questions I could have asked you. Uh, but, you know, for the sake of our listeners not running on forever and ever, what do you want to leave us with? Uh, what, what, what should people just, you know, if they have five minutes and they want to know more or, or if there's something they should be thinking about while they're out there hunting or just down the landscape, what do you want to leave us with today? Yeah, I guess it- well, to convey a couple things and something that, I mean, I, I get the opportunity to convey some of the exciting things that we learn through our work. And I mean, I emphasize that it's not just me. There's a whole team of people here. I work with incredible students that are incredibly passionate and uh, so many other field personnel across agencies from Wyoming Game and Fish to BLM to Forest Service as well. But at the same time, what we do, I mean, I don't just, well, sit here now in my bedroom, I guess, and decide like, oh, let's just go do this work in this place. And we just go do it. Uh, Because it takes money. And it takes money to keep these projects going. And even when we talked about like, the rose petal hypothesis, and connecting these cross generational things, which are not only really exciting to get a sense of like how that happens with these animals, matters so much for management, conservation, and how we think about these things. 
happening across the landscape. And so we're very fortunate to have a whole suite of various people, entities from Wyoming Game and Fish to Wyoming Wildlife and Natural Resource Trust to BLM to Mealy Fanatic Foundation to, I mean, there's a whole suite of entities that believe in the work that we do, also want answers uh, and get behind us to support our work. And I'd be remiss to not acknowledge that side of it too. It's amazing to be able to have these conversations, but I never forget all the work that went into it. And honestly, a lot of hunter constituents that have supported various groups that end, then end up passing resources on to us have made this work possible. So the work we talk about, it's not just mine, it's not just my groups. Honestly, it's everybody's. And I hope we're, I hope we're doing it justice. And to, I mean, to learn, to learn more. So when I referenced our effort to connect better, to outreach, uh, our social media handles just at monteith.shop. Uh, we don't vomit out a lot of stuff. We try to be very intentional with what we convey, convey so we're not going to flood you with a whole whole lot of nonsense. Uh, not that that's a bad thing, but at the same time, we just try to be very intentional about it. And then our other, our outreach platform uh, is the Ungulate Compendium. And that's just that ungulatecompendium.org where we're, and it's, it's an ongoing work in process where we're trying to take ecological concepts and other pieces and then convey them in an engaging and interesting and hopefully visually appealing manner at the, at the same time. So those are some places to connect with us and learn more if you're interested. And then at the same time, I think just the notion of, I mean, we, we talked about a number of different layers of science and what we've learned, but I think just my hope is with as, as these conversations go on with time, that maybe people just look at an animal a little bit differently. It's not just the random mule deer that we happen to see just outside of town or, or up on the mountainside or that bugling bull elk. You know, it's an incredible sound, but man, there's, there's so much more to it than that. And I think in our electronic whatever visually stimulating world that we that we now live in we've we've lost that sort of naturalist connection to the animals that that live and reign within these landscapes and i think i think one way of overcoming that apathy is in part to become a bit better informed to and as we learn some of these nuances with how animals make decisions and how these things translate across generations. My hope is that all those things will help us get better connected because anymore, I think our connections with that world uh, has, has waned over the years. And I'm, I'm pretty convinced that, and this is sort of like the advocate in me from a scientific perspective, I guess, like I'm not saying this is what we need to go do in any landscape. I want to provide or, or to a population. I want to, we want to provide the information so people can be informed to make those decisions. But at the same time, I am convinced that we, we've generated a sense of apathy over time. And my hope is that with some of these intriguing observations that we can, we can push to overcome some of that apathy. Yeah. It's hard to stay, uh, <laughs> it's hard to stay disciplined and, and hard to hang out very long in a really quiet place these days, unfortunately. <laughs> There's a lot of distraction, but uh, it's almost become my, my sign-off call. And that is, I, I keep saying, it's something I've been pushing. You'll see it out there in a lot of our work is this, this notion of we can't have the privilege without the obligation. 
meaning we're so privileged, you know, here in the West and across our country, these, these wildlife populations and their habitat aren't here by accident. Uh, there's been a lot of work. There's been generations and, and a lot of broad shoulders that we've had to, to step on and crawl up to get where we're at. And you, you said it well, but use that immense privilege and, and take it as an obligation to go do something. Uh, that's what we continue to preach and, and get engaged. We will, we will definitely put in our show notes, some links to Kevin's work and his shop and, and all the good stuff you're doing. And, and just, just thanks, Kevin, you're doing, you're doing amazing work. You're teaching us all a lot. And, uh, we, we're, we're hoping and praying and, and keeping hope alive. We're going to get those mule deer back to where they need to be and, and keep that habitat intact. And, uh, Wyoming is certainly, certainly the core of it. So you're in the, you're in the right spot. Yes, thank sir. You, Kevin. Uh, no, thanks. Thanks for the opportunity, guys. Appreciate the conversation. We are NWF Outdoors.